I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Series 1, Chapter 7, Why All the Footnotes? Shakespeare's Mental Furniture. Session 2, The Human Order. In the previous session, we looked at the medieval and Renaissance view of the cosmos as a hierarchical structure. Today, we will turn to the hierarchical order among and within human beings. The great order of the universe is called the macrocosm, from the Greek macro, meaning great or large, and cosmos, meaning order. A cosmetic is something that puts the face in order. Within that macrocosm, there were any number of microcosms, from the Greek micro, meaning small. The state was a microcosm in relation to the universe, but a macrocosm in relation to the microcosm of the household or the individual person. Each microcosm was a reflection or mini-version of the macrocosm. Within the human cosmos, at the top were the emperor, especially in ancient times when the Roman emperor ruled the known world, and then the kings of particular nations. Below the king were the aristocratic hierarchies, dukes and duchesses, earls and their ladies, counts and countesses, barons and their ladies, knights and their ladies. Then came the middle classes, gentlemen and gentlewomen, and finally the lower classes, yeomen, craftsmen, servants, peasants, and beggars. Slaves and mad beggars were at the very bottom of the human hierarchy, a fact that bears remembering when we see Edgar disguising himself in King Lear. What are the implications of this concept of hierarchical order for the government of society? Because of the Enlightenment and romantic ideas to which we are heir, we take for granted that democracy is the best or least worst form of government. As Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all those others that have been tried. We take for granted too, or did until recently, the natural equality of all men and the belief that being treated equally by the government is a natural right. These are great advancements in human civilization. But in the 18th century, these ideas were relatively new. In Shakespeare's time, by contrast, the only proper government was monarchical. This idea is clearly related to the hierarchical image of reality. The king, ruling in the microcosm of the state by God's will, and answerable only to God, reflected the absolute rule of God in the macrocosm. Not all monarchs were good, of course, but if they were bad, the fault lay in them, not in the form of government. Just as we believe that when our democratically elected leaders lie, cheat, steal, or tyrannize, the fault lies not with our form of government, but with individual people. Unfolding within this prevailing Renaissance idea about monarchy, Shakespeare's plays are filled with discussions of who is a good ruler and who a bad one, who is a rightful ruler and who a wrongful, when may a king be overthrown and when not, and so on. As noted in the discussion of good and evil in relation to Shakespeare's characters in chapter 5, for Shakespeare a good ruler could be really and truly good, even if he were an absolute monarch. Since the order of the universe was hierarchical, 
the government of any human institution could not be in harmony with the rest of reality if there were not one capable person in charge. A state in which the monarch ruled with strength and wisdom, tempering justice with mercy, was for Shakespeare and most of his audience the best possible form of government and the only legitimate form. Conversely, Shakespeare's plays depict democratic rule as synonymous with mob rule. Every gathering of the people was subject to being swayed by the demagoguery of one individual who could speak well, and the mob was portrayed as the worst possible instrument for determining the rightness of any course of action. The mob could be swayed as easily to bad behavior as to good. The American founders were aware of this danger as well, and strove to protect against it with a representative form of government, checks and balances, the electoral college, and so on. When we read Julius Caesar, we tend to sympathize with the conspirators, who want to overthrow the man who would supplant the Roman Senate and become a dictator. But Shakespeare means us to see that the motives of the conspirators are either selfish or, as in Brutus, tragically flawed. For while Caesar is a fallible mortal, being a weaker swimmer than Cassius, having one bad ear, and suffering from the falling sickness, that is, epilepsy, yet at the same time he is, in Shakespeare's conception, the greatest leader of men of his age, and the man destined to consolidate the Roman Empire. For Shakespeare's world, the killing of Caesar was the worst historical event to have happened in human history, apart from the crucifixion. Shakespeare presents it as being analogous to the crucifixion in its immediate consequences. Darkness in the daytime, eclipse, comet, earthquake, screaming ghosts, lions whelping in the streets, and so on. To overthrow Caesar, the secular emperor of the known world, no matter what his weaknesses as a particular man, was akin to attempting the overthrow of God. Dante had imagined the souls of Brutus and Cassius along with Judas Iscariot in the mouths of Satan in the lowest level of hell, that of the traitors to their rightful rulers. It is crucial to understand this attitude toward kingship in order to make Shakespearean sense not only of Julius Caesar, but also of Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, King Lear, Measure for Measure, the Henry IV plays, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and in fact every Shakespeare play in which any sort of ruler appears. Shakespeare founds his concept of monarchy partly on the Renaissance idea of the two bodies of the king. In all Shakespeare's plays, the king is thought of as both a natural man and the embodiment of the body politic. The body of the natural man refers to the individual person who is king. He has a character, a personality, a set of physical characteristics, and the abilities and weaknesses that might accompany any particular human being. The other body of the king implies the concept that the king is not only a natural man, but also an embodiment of the state. As Tudor legal scholar Edmund Plowden wrote, The king has in him two bodies, videlicet, a body natural, and a body politic. His body natural, if it be considered in itself, is a body mortal, 
subject to all infirmities that come by nature or accident. But his body politic is a body that cannot be seen or handled, consisting of policy and government, and constituted for the direction of the people and the management of the public weal. Weal means welfare. And this body is utterly void of natural defects, which the body natural is subject to, and for this cause, what the king does in his body politic cannot be invalidated or frustrated by any disability in his natural body. This is why the kings in Hamlet are called Denmark and Norway, meaning the king of Denmark, who represents Denmark itself, and the king of Norway, who embodies Norway as a whole. This is also why the king speaks in the royal plural. In Hamlet at Act 1, Scene 2, Lines 1 through 7, Claudius uses the phrases, Our dear brother's death, it us befitted, our hearts, our whole kingdom, we think, remembrance of ourselves. We are amazed, says King Richard II, at Act 3, Scene 3, Line 72. When the king speaks as king rather than only as a particular person, he speaks both as himself and as the voice of the state. Therefore, to attack a king is to attack not only the man who happens to be occupying the throne, but the throne and the state themselves. The hierarchy was not limited to public life, but prevailed in the microcosm of private life as well, the family. A man's home was his castle. That meant that in his own home, a man was analogous to a knight or a lord in his castle and had the right to defend it from attack. Within that home, he ruled with full authority. Wives were expected to obey their husbands and children their parents. But again, this did not mean that the man of the house was justified in behaving in any way he wanted toward his wife and children. Just as they were obligated to serve and obey him, so was he obligated to care for, protect, and instruct them. Any man who used his God-ordained right to rule as an excuse for the cruel oppression of his wife and children would have been considered a brute who had compromised his right to their obedience. Of course, in practice then as now, there was distance between reality and the ideal. In Shakespeare's time, some men mistreated their wives just as they do now. Then, in addition to breaking the universal rules of justice and kindness, such men were breaking the rule of their responsibility within the hierarchy. Now, such men, in addition to breaking the universal rules, break the rule of equality. Thus, it is important to realize that in Shakespeare's time, the hierarchical right to govern in one's family gave no justification for cruelty or injustice to spouse or children, any more than today such misbehavior is justified by the democratic right to equal treatment under the law or the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The universal values of justice and kindness have not changed. We should also note that some wives disobeyed their husbands, and whether or not they were justified depended on why. The hierarchy did not demand that they obey a violent, drunken brute giving sinful orders, but neither did it justify disobedience to reasonable commands meant for their ultimate good. 
Now let's turn to the individual. In the modern Western world, we think of a human being as a free individual who, unless oppressed by wrongful authority, may live however and wherever he likes, identifying with whatever group he chooses. So much do we take this idea for granted that we too often forget that this freedom for the individual is a new thing in the world, one at great cost. In the medieval and Renaissance world, by contrast, the individual was not absolute. People were defined, and thought of themselves, in terms of their physical place, social rank, professional class, gender, city, and nation. Today, in answer to the question, who are you, unless you have become a victim of the new obliteration of the individual by so-called identity politics, you will say your name. Your name would be enough to identify you as you. If you added details, it would only be for particular purposes. I'm a seasoned ticket holder. I'm a taxidermist. I was born in Vermont, and so on. In earlier times, by contrast, in answer to who are you, you would have to say something like this. I am Romeo of the Montagues, a Christian gentleman of Verona, of whose prince I am a loyal subject. This complex nature of individual identity stands behind the conversation between Romeo and Juliet about Romeo's name. Juliet, art thou not Romeo and a Montague? Romeo, neither, fair maid, if either thee dislike. It also stands behind the power of the word banishment. To be banished is not only to be forced to move from here to there, packing, change of address card to the yet-to-be-invented post office, and so on. It means to be threatened with the loss of one's very identity. If I am banished from Verona, no city, no prince, no rank, no family, no place, then I am reduced to being almost a non-person. Compare Richard's meditations on who he is once he is no longer king in Richard II, Act 4, Scene 1. The concept of hierarchy prevailed even in the thinking about the microcosm of the individual person. The little world of the self could be either in harmony with the elements, the state, the world, and the heavens, or not. In a well-ordered person, the highest authority was the soul sometimes identified with the mind, sometimes with right reason. Beneath the soul or mind or reason were the emotions or passions, often called affections. Then came the physical needs and desires and the physical body itself. A well-ordered human being was one in whom, as Plato had taught, the virtuous mind governed the body and its desires through the rightly trained emotions or affections. By contrast, a failed human being, internally chaotic and therefore inevitably both unhappy and morally bad, was one in whom the higher faculties weakly submitted to the government of the lower, in whom emotions tyrannized over the mind, or the physical desires of the body tyrannized over both. Each of the aspects of the self was imagined to be located in an organ called its seat from the idea of the throne, and thence the building, where an official like a king or a judge sits. Reason in the brain, emotions in the heart, 
lower desires in the other organs. The seat of sexual desire, for example, was thought of as being in the liver. Hysteria happened when vapors or spirits called humors arose against the hierarchical arrangement out of their proper seat in the womb. Hysteria comes from the Greek word for womb, hystera. Sometimes these three functions were thought of, again based on Plato, as three souls, or three aspects of soul. The intelligible soul, responsible for intellect and self-consciousness, the sensible soul, responsible for basic awareness, feelings, emotions, and sensations, and the vegetable soul, responsible for physical growth and biological processes. Plants were thought to have vegetable souls only. Animals, from the Latin anima, meaning soul, had both vegetable and sensible souls. Human beings have vegetable, sensible, and intelligible souls. And angels have only intelligible souls, hence are called pure intelligences. The hierarchy of elements extended into the human body. Each person was characterized by the particular relation or complexion of the four interior elements called humors, each combining two of the fundamental natural qualities. Blood was hot and moist. Phlegm was cold and moist. Yellow bile, or collar, was hot and dry, and black bile was cold and dry. These four humors governed not only skin tone, but the whole complex of qualities that made up the body and personality together. Excess blood caused one to be of the sanguine type, from Latin sanguis, meaning blood. Red-faced and cheerful, like Santa Claus or Sir John Falstaff. Excess phlegm caused one to be phlegmatic, dull-spirited and lazy, like a couch potato. Excess yellow bile, choler, from the Greek coli, bile or gall, made one choleric, quickly upset or stirred to anger, like the otherwise cowardly Sir Andrew Aguecheek in Twelfth Night, or like the brave Hotspur in Henry IV Part I. And excess black bile, from the Greek melon, meaning black, made one melancholic, sad or depressed, like Jacus in As You Like It, or Don John in Much Ado About Nothing. A person in whom these four humors were properly mixed was said to be in temper, from the word tempus in Latin, the word for time. To be temperate comes from the idea of adjusting to the need of the time. One's temperament was one's particular characteristic proportion of the humors, and to be momentarily out of balance was to lose one's temper. This way of accounting for human moods will seem less foreign if you consider how we now believe ourselves to be affected by humors like serotonin, endorphins, adrenaline, and the other hormones. Lastly, there were the five wits. What we call the five senses, the Renaissance called the five external senses, or wits. Sight, hearing, touch, taste, and smell. But there were also understood to be five internal wits, or capacities of the mind, variously named and defined, including the common sense, or common wit, 
which combines the impressions of the senses and includes the awareness of sensing, memory, which retains impressions, imagination, which brings impressions to awareness or invents them, fantasy, which separates and unites impressions or plays with mental images, and estimation, which evaluates impressions and is aware of the practical significance of things, enabling a cow to pick out her own calf or an animal to fly from its natural enemy. I will add, as a footnote, that the differences in the ways of categorizing the five internal wits arise from the complex history of the treatment of the subject. The ideas derive from Aristotle and descend to Shakespeare through, among others, Martianus Capella, Augustine, Boethius, Avicenna, Averroes, Albertus Magnus, Thomas Aquinas, Geoffrey Chaucer, and Stephen Hawes. My description of the five wits is based on that of C.S. Lewis in The Discarded Image. Dramaturge Dakin Matthews, in his podcast called Psychology 2, in the excellent series Sheltering with Shakespeare, catalogues the five internal wits somewhat differently. He identifies them as the functions of the sensible soul, that is, of those faculties human beings share with animals, and describes them thus. Common sense receives and combines sense impressions into an image. Cognitive sense receives an imprint of the image. Memory retains the image. Fantasy or imagination reproduces the image. And estimation evaluates the image. In the next session, we will discuss the doctrine of correspondence and the concept of authority, specifically that of Christianity and of Renaissance classicism and humanism. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Thank you.